Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the first episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking about the whole shebang, discussing the concept of the issue, pain and passion, and we'll be bringing in a very special imaginary podcast guest, C.S. Lewis. We'll also be solving the problem of theodicy, in case you wanted that to happen in your life today. O wretched man, earth fated to be cursed, abyss of plagues and miseries the worst, horrors on horrors, griefs on griefs must show that man's the victim of unceasing woe, and lamentations which inspire my strain prove that philosophy is false and vain. Say, when you hear their piteous half-formed cries, or from their ashes see the smoke arise, say, will you then eternal laws maintain? which God to cruelties like these constrain? Whilst you these facts replete with horror view, will you maintain death to their crimes was due? Earth, Lisbon swallows, the light sons of France protract the feast or lead the sprightly dance. Yet in this direful chaos, you'd compose a general bliss from individuals' woes. Oh, worthless bliss, an injured reason's sight, with faltering voice you cry, what is, is right. And this was a selection from a poem, The Lisbon Earthquake by Voltaire, written in 1755 after an absolutely horrible earthquake in Lisbon, uh, a translation here from William F. Fleming. And of course, this reminds us of the earthquake that just took the lives of 40,000 people in Turkey and Syria, and again, raises the problem of pain and suffering. Why are they, and are they a challenge to any claim that the universe was created with the good of uh, human beings and of the creation as a whole in mind? Right. So this is a – when we decided on this issue, we realized we were kind of biting off a big hunk of something. Yeah, this is not a, a small topic. Uh, kind of – you know, a big, big chunk of all the world's religious and philosophical traditions, you know, are kind of implicated in the question of why suffering. Right. The problem of pain. So the, the title of the issue is uh, Pain and Passion. And we, on some level, we did that because like just an issue called just pain seemed like more of a bummer. Um, it almost but, seemed like a visit to the dentist. Yeah. Yeah. Um but we but we also did that because pain and passion um in in the classical sense are related to each other so um i guess we can start out and obviously these questions of pain you know aren't don't just um relate to what's going what happened in syria obviously the the issue of pain doesn't just have to do with natural disasters like earthquakes it also touches on lots and lots of um you know, other political and kind of issues in the news. Um, it, you know, it, it touches on questions of MAID, medically assisted death, um, of abortion, of the opioid epidemic, as well as obviously kind of more pressingly being something that each of us deals with, um, you know, in, in our own personal lives. And actually the idea for the issue was suggested by a friend of ours, Randall Gogger. He's a pastor in the Bruderhof community, and he contributed a piece to the issue, which we'll 
talk about a little bit later, called In Search of Solace. Uh, he was inspired particularly by the experience of chronic pain, which is something that many, many people live with. And which of all things, if you're the one living with it, uh, forces you to reckon with the fact that life without suffering, uh, actually for all of us eventually, um, is not imaginable. Uh, human life simply does involve pain, and uh, for some sooner than later. So we do want to talk a little bit about passion. Um, why do we have passion in there as a, as a word? What is passion in this context? Um, and obviously one of the ways that we can understand passion is the passion of Christ who, who went to the cross to suffer. But why is that called the passion? It seems like a kind of a weird word to use for it. And it has to do with something very strange about Christianity, especially if you consider that Christians are for the most part classical theists. Um, one of the attributes of God in classical theism is that he doesn't have what, what's called passion. He is without passions, meaning that he can't be moved by something outside him. That's kind of what passion means. He's impassable in that context. And one of the things that bizarrely happens in the crucifixion, um, and that happens as the result of the incarnation, is that God, who is without passions, becomes able to be passionate, essentially. He becomes able to be moved. And um, our very special guest, um, who we are not having here because we're not necromancers, but we are having here imaginarily because we are talking about his books, uh, C.S. Lewis talks quite a bit about this. Um, so we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, but what we're trying to do here is to talk about these common human experiences of pain and suffering um, in a specifically Christian way. What's the difference philosophically that Christianity makes and what's the difference existentially that Christianity makes? Um Pete, you recently had a really interesting conversation uh, that touched on the difference that Christianity makes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. And that's absolutely actually the next episode of this series of podcasts on the pain of passion issue of Plow. Uh, that's with the historian and author Tom Holland, uh, the beloved host of the, the co-host of the podcast, The Rest is History. And uh, we had a discussion about the change that happens when Christianity enters, you know, enters history. Uh, people's approach to the question, the problem of pain before and after, and the huge change that made. Now, I don't want to steal too much of the thunder from that upcoming episode, because of course, Tom and his immensely witty and amusing way, uh, with his vast knowledge of ancient culture, is going to do that better than we will right now. But that is one thing that we're going to get into in this series, the difference that Christianity made to the way people thought about all the things that we try to avoid in life. Yeah. And even though we are in an arguably a post-Christian culture or something of a post-Christian culture, there are still effects that we can see from this sort of Christian reconception of pain um, that, that persist even in our secular culture. So what are those, Susanna? Susanna because uh, this is stealing more from Tom Holland, not from our interview. Because how post-Christian are those ideas actually? Right, they're not particularly post-Christian. Um, they're, I think, without the ballast of Christianity, they can they tend to run wild like unharnessed truths. But um, 
they are thoroughly Christian. So the idea of the idea that um, it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong, that it's more noble to suffer than to do wrong, that um, if you are in some sense a victim, you have a kind of a, a particular place of um, authority in a way in society and that you have a particular kind of power in your powerlessness. These are all ideas that are fundamental to the way that we do politics and the way that we experience political debate. Um, very frequently, it seems that both left and right in, in US politics, at least, which is what I know best, um, seek to portray themselves as the victim because that is the most powerful place to be, ironically, in our um, psychology which would have made no sense at all to pre-Christian uh, classical cultures. Right. To be, to be among the oppressed gave you no moral superiority to the oppressor. In fact, it was the oppressor who was more like the gods, and it was the oppressed who were ridiculous. Their suffering was of no interest, and at most was something to be mocked. And so there is something deeply, you know, in what you know, is often called negatively uh, by, I guess, mostly conservatives, sort of victimhood culture. Uh, that is a form of this Christian insight that the suffering one is the one to whom God is closest. Right. Or who has the history on his side or, or her side, um, or who is the noble one, the good guy. Which gets us back to Voltaire. Right. <laughs> So Voltaire, that rather passionate cry against the idea that in the face of a calamity like the earthquake in Lisbon in 1755 or the earthquake this year in the Middle East, that there could be a good God who wills or permits or has created a world in which so many people, so many children, so many innocent people just going around their, about their lives uh, – could die, lose loved ones, be injured, lose all they have. Uh, in this last earthquake, I believe 1.5 million people are estimated to have been left homeless in the cold. That itself is a very Christian cry. Yeah. Uh, it would not have troubled an ancient Greek uh, to wonder why Zeus permitted people to suffer. Right, because we'll get into this a little bit later in, in C.S. Lewis's discussion of why this is a problem. Um, but there's something deeply Christian, even in Voltaire's rejection of uh, Leibniz, and I think Alexander Pope was the other kind of big early Enlightenment dude who um, was very into the idea that whatever is, is good. Um, that is the basically that that's the philosophical optimism that Voltaire is attacking in this poem. And he goes through all the different kinds of like ways that people in his experience um, were trying to explain or justify the ways of God to man, so to speak, um, to, to explain why this earthquake was somehow okay. Like was, it, you know, is God bringing a greater good out of this suffering is are the people who suffered in the earthquake sinners um are like um is this something that we is that we ought to learn from all of these different kinds of approaches to um you know an explanation for the philosophical problem um that is made existential by something like 
an earthquake being in something like the news, which was the other weird thing about the Lisbon earthquake. It was kind of the first like international news story of disaster, which we obviously now get very frequently. Um, and the, I actually think I reread, I read through that, the poem, and I thought it was interesting the degree to which Voltaire didn't really even seem to know about what I would consider to be a distinctly Christian answer to this question. Um, or at least he doesn't raise it as one of the things that he, you know, waves away angrily as insufficient. Um, it, it's not really there in his horizon. And what, what that was, that Christian answer is, or what that sort of field of Christian answers is, I think we'll talk about later. I think it is appropriate now, before we get too much farther into this, to take Voltaire's admonition to humility mm -hmm. and just admit uh, that it's very difficult to talk about these kinds of things as people who haven't experienced them. And there is something, I believe, to the kind of modern uh, tendency to say, well, if you're not in the injured party, you have no right to speak for them. I certainly haven't experienced anything like the earthquake in, in Turkey, Syria. Uh, I've experienced no particular great tragedies in life. And even in terms of physical pain, not a lot to speak of since taking, you know, losing my wisdom teeth, Susanna. Yeah, that was kind of my major one as well. Yeah, um, which is one reason why I, I kind of hesitated before writing an editorial to this issue and in the end ceded the ground to Randy, who had a little more life experience in this area. Um, Randy lost his son to cancer at age 21 and then uh, has in his family um, some experience of long-lasting chronic pain that uh, definitely influenced his thinking about this. So none of what we're going to say is offered in this spirit of uh, what, hopefully, what Voltaire is criticizing, that uh, we're trying to justify, explain away, minimize, say it's all for the best. Um, there is something about the fact of suffering, you know, about this earthquake, right? When it, when it happened, I think I, like many people, were just kind of depressed for days. Uh, people say, you know, use the phrase that there has been purposeless suffering, and it really does seem an event like this, you know, particularly in an area that's already been suffering so much from years of warfare, uh, just so, so horrible. Um, you can think back to other such events over the last couple of decades, for instance, the tsunami in, in Asia um, back in 2004. These things happen, and I think Voltaire's reaction against a kind of lazy philosophy that just said in his words, um, with faltering voice you cry, what is, is right. Christians for years probably let themselves get off too easy with this stuff. Um, and so in our way of talking about it, uh, we're definitely going to try at least not to just kind of give some easy answers um, to these things, but also take them with the seriousness they deserve. And uh, hopefully also remind folks, which is one reason why we wanted to start with the Lisbon earthquake, that these conversations, these questions, this heartache is nothing new. And uh, we are not 
sort of we moderns are not uniquely sensitive. We're not the uniquely moral people who, are, for the first time, have a problem with this stuff. Uh, this is something that goes back certainly right to the beginning of Christianity, and I'd imagine back ten thousands of years of human history. Yeah. Um, there is a kind of interesting thing about the way that Voltaire was thinking about the Lisbon earthquake, which is, he, and the way that people have written about it since, there was this kind of sense that he had that now we know that everything is horrible. It used to be that we had these small worlds and we could think that everything was basically okay. But now because of enlightenment, because of um, greater degrees of communication, now we know that things are horrible. But as C.S. Lewis points out in his Problem of Pain, which is the first book of his we're going to talk about, all of the experience of humanity leading up to our contemporary world, the, you know, he doesn't point this out, but um, infant mortality was 50%. You know, you were, you were likely, every child who was born was, had a 50% chance of dying before age five. And there was no chloroform. So those are the kind of, you know, there were, there were no opiates. So in a, in a world where those two things are true, I don't think that we can say that we know more about pain or more about suffering than our ancestors did. With that, we should probably invite our invisible guests onto the show. So uh, welcome, C.S. Lewis. Welcome and, to C.S. Uh, Lewis. There are two books of Lewis's that we're going to sort of imagine and narrowly converse with. Mm-hmm. Susanna, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction? Sure. Um, well, let's talk first about C.S. Lewis, his sort of history. His, As you, many of you may know, he um, was born in the very late 19th century, I think 1899 or something like that. Um, he, His mother died of cancer when he was 10, I think. He was in the First World War, um, where his best friend died, I think, in front of him. Um, he still kind of was basic. He had ha- he'd not had an enormous what he would consider an enormous amount of suffering in his life, I think, um, although he did have some chronic pain later. Um, and as an adult, he converted to Christianity and at the urging of a friend, he wrote his first kind of attempt to handle this, what's called the question of theodicy, which is the official name for this quite, these set of sets of questions that we're dealing with the problem of pain. If there is a good God and if God is all powerful and if God is all loving, why do we still suffer? Um, either God is not all powerful, and so we can't stop our pain, or he's not all loving, and he and so he doesn't want to stop our pain. That's kind of the the framework. And he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain um, fairly early in his life. I think he was in his 30s, not that long after his conversion. Right, as it came out in 1940. Right. I guess so he was early 40s. Um, he then got married quite late in life, I think when he was close to 60. Um, and his wife, very quickly after they were married, it might have even happened just before they got married when they were on their way to be married. She was diagnosed with cancer and she died after a good deal, like an, quite a lot of pain. Um, I think around three years later, I'm not sure of the exact um, uh, sort of timetable there. Um, after which he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, which was actually just originally his journal um, from that time, which, again, a friend urged him to publish. It's a very different kind of book. Um, if the problem of pain 
addresses the kind of philosophical and theological intellectual issues of believing um, in a kind of apologetic mode um, of believing in, in, in God, in the Christian God, in a world where pain exists. A Grief Observed is a, it's a very painful book to read. It's a cry of the heart. He's suffering as he's writing. Um, and it's all, and it's wonderful. Um, both books are wonderful. I don't, I'm not of the camp, which says, oh, you know, Problem of Pain was a book of, you know, was an epistle of straw, basically. Or, you know, like it was, it was fake because he hadn't really suffered until he wrote A Grief Observed. He actually, I mean, it, it's very uh, sort of endearing. He wrote a little preface to A Problem of Pain where he, so I could totally identify with this, where he basically said, you know, I didn't want to write this book. I wanted to write it anonymously because I knew I hadn't suffered very much. And the... Uh, you know, the, the whoever commissioned it uh, told me, well, you can write a little preface where you basically disclaim the whole thing and say you don't know what you're talking about. And he basically did that. I mean, uh, you know, the preface almost is the strongest criticism of the book from the point of view of you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and he took it totally on board. And throughout the book, he, he says, you know, uh, dear reader, you're probably imagining as I'm saying this, uh, that's very nice for you to say while you're writing. I'd like to see you when you're actually suffering. And he admits straight out, well, I'll tell you what I'm like while I'm suffering. I am a great coward. And uh, you should be able to understand that because so are you. Yeah. Yeah. So Lewis is very much here. You know, he's he's approaching it from the, the, the point of view of what are the intellectual issues involved. And so let's talk about that. Um, th what he first addresses is what we were kind of talking about earlier, which is that the problem of pain as it kind of exists for us um, wouldn't really have been something that existed for the pagans, for example. Like, if Zeus is all good and Zeus is all powerful, why would Zeus allow suffering if he loves us is not a question that that the ancients would have asked because they didn't think that Zeus was particularly all good, nor did he think that he was, they think he was all powerful, um, nor did they think that he loved them particularly, although some of them might have been his favorites. No, he didn't love Prometheus very much, did no, he? No, he didn't love Prometheus very much. Um, so, like, the question, the way that um, the mystery at the heart of the question of theodicy is not, like, does God, can we, can we, how can we believe that God exists in the midst of this mystery of pain? It's how did anyone start to believe that the Christian God exists, given that everyone who started to believe that he existed was living in a world with no chloroform and where most children died before the age of five. Um, how could you believe? Why would, why would in, why on earth would you ever believe in a God who was, who was something more like Yahweh than like Zeus? How did the idea that the universe is good, that you could, you know, derive an idea of an ultimate goodness, how did it even occur to people? Yeah. And Lewis, you know, kind of goes through a little bit of a genealogy of how these, these, these ideas got started with human beings. And the kind of crucial thing is the moment that your experience of the numinous and your, you know, the sort of the sense of mystery or the sense of beyond or the sense of the supernatural um, which kind of tends to belong to the world of gods and monsters and myth and um, ghosts and so on, which is something, which is a sort of an aspect of the world that people have usually mostly 
believed in sort of and been have been worried that it exists right that's the basis for all forms of shamanism of a primitive religion so to speak that we're aware of the sense that there is something awful and terrible uh that is bigger than us uh that makes our skin prickle yeah not necessarily terrible in a bad way but terrible in a terrifying way um and not necessarily terrifying in in the sense that it's going to hurt us, but that terrifying in the sense that that it exists is terrifying. It's somehow bigger than us. It's uncanny is the word he uses. And there, the moment that kind of got where things got interesting um, for us was the moment when that idea merged with this quite separate idea that had been like, you know, mostly the province of you know, people trying to make good decisions in their lives on the one hand, and also philosophers on the other, which is the question of goodness. So like ethics. Um, and the moment when the numinous and the ethical merged, like that, that moment, which kind of one could point to Moses getting the Ten Commandments from the extremely numinous and freaky God, and these Ten Commandments are things like, don't lie. Like, that's that's the weird moment. That right there, that's – if you think that's normal, that's not normal. So people – I mean, and, and Lewis, I think, is quite convincing on this, that people, you know, in many different cultures and geographic areas had had this sense of the numinous. I mean, we know just from cave paintings, we presume, we imagine, we speculate that there was this kind of sense of the numinous going way back, this sense of awe. And we know that people around the world have – a pretty similar set of ethical intuitions, right? Oughts and ought nots, not lying, not betraying, not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery, uh, with variation, are pretty widespread. Uh, but again, going back to the ancient Greeks, you look at ancient Greek mythology, you do not see those two combined. You don't see the great gods... Uh, simultaneously modeling the oughts and ought nots very well. Mm -hmm. And then comes Abraham and the Hebrew prophets. Yeah. And Moses. And, yeah. And so this, this vision of ethical men, and oh, and then it got even weirder because not only is the numinous um, connected to the ethical, but there is only one God. So everything is just getting stranger. Everything is getting in a weird way, less intuitive. Um, as you go through human history, as you go through the development of Judaism, and then it gets even weirder in Christianity because that impassable God, who's the God of the philosophers, who's also the numinous God of, you know, storms on the, on the, you know, at the peak of Sinai, um, who was in the burning bush, which is an incredibly freaky and numinous thing to happen. If you think about that, that impassable God, the God of the philosophers, who's also the ethical God, who's also the um, Newman as God becomes a baby and empties himself of all, all that, um, th that kept him apart from us and became passable. He became able to suffer passion. And then what he suffered on the cross was his passion. It was a, an ultimate example of being acted on and suffering in, in the sense that we understand suffering. And, that was not the end of the story either. So there is some, what we're trying to do here is like 
connect the problem of pain the as we experience it as a philosophical problem with the weirdness of the story of Christianity. And they're very, very closely connected. They don't really exist apart from each other. I actually thought that this genealogy at the beginning of Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, was was the strongest part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it is, is excellent. And yeah. I don't think we're going to trace the rest of the argument here. No. <laughs> our, our, our point here is just to lay the groundwork that, again, to get back to Voltaire's protest against the Lisbon earthquake. This makes no sense unless Voltaire was already convinced, had been brought up, you know, in a culture in which the numinous, the all-powerful God, was also supposed to be a good one who cared about some random poor people in Lisbon. Uh, Why should he otherwise? And, And so Voltaire's rebellion against the Christian God really only makes sense kind of on Christian premises. And, and Lewis gets into all this. He also talks, there's a very moving chapter at the end about animal pain, which is a, one thing that I think a more modern atheism tends to focus on a lot. Uh, think about parasites. Think about uh, just the death toll in a herd of deer in a given winter, right? Um, Cordyceps. Th- all these things bother us, um, particularly, I think, nowadays, in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> we definitely do know a little bit more about parasites and just all the weird fun- fungi and uh, other things that afflict animals than folks did back in the day. But again, people back in the day lived a lot closer to animals than we do, and uh, they too were hardly unfamiliar with animal suffering. So that's another topic his books get into, but we won't, we will, we will keep ourselves, Susanna, from diving into it right now. Right. Just a little housekeeping before we continue with the rest of our discussion. Heads up, we have a new format. As opposed to each episode containing two segments, we're switching to just one segment per episode. Um, that is one guest or one discussion, although there will be like two bits to it. But you're not getting any less content rather than having six weeks on and six weeks off. We're going to be giving you an episode every single week. That's pretty good deal, right? Good deal. There'll also continue to be plow reads, which are audio versions of our articles, which you'll be able to access through a different channel. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back with the rest of our conversation about theodicy and the current issue, Pain and Passion, with our special guest, C.S. Lewis, after the break. The problem of pains is just a really, really great kind of primer in Christian way of thinking about suffering and why it matters. And I guess we should give away at least one of the the payoffs um, before we move on to a grief observed. So let me uh, give one quote from this book, which at least points to the solution that Lewis finds, which is that suffering is not good in itself. But suffering can serve to remind us that God exists and point us to the higher destiny that human beings are called for in a way that we wouldn't have access to if suffering didn't exist. And so in that sense, pain can be, not always is, can be good for us. 
And he says, let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God, who made these deserving people who suffer, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed, that all this must fall from them in the end, and that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. And therefore he troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families stands between them and the recognition of their need. He makes that life less sweet to them. So that's a teaser. That's a teaser. It's not, I don't think the ultimate, I think there are two other pieces that are kind of even more ultimate in both Lewis's answer and in, I would say, the answer. But we can get to those later. But now let's turn to um, his approach in A Grief Observed. Which a Grief is this... Observed. And I'd like to introduce that by returning to uh, my friend Randall Gogger, who, again, inspired this issue with his idea. And I'd like to, before we get into Lewis, uh, talk about, uh, just quote a couple of things from Randy because Randy wrote a piece for the issue, which we're going to drop in the show notes. Uh, again, it's called A Search for Solace, um, where he leans a lot on a grief observed. And so I think it helps kind of set up how this matters. He writes about losing his son, Matt, to cancer. Matt was actually a good friend of mine. Um, he died within about six months of getting a metastatic cancer at a young age. Uh, really, really tough, super painful. Um, death. Really hard to watch. And Randy uh, writes, it is unnatural to see your child die. There is something inside you that simply says, this should not be. But being in that room when he left us and hearing him, hearing him speak of things he was seeing and feeling, things of heaven and eternity, changed us forever. Matt saw things that we could not see or fully comprehend, but for a few hours we glimpsed through him the other side of that door we will all go through one day. And so this experience turned Randy to a grief observed. And I believe, Susanna, you're going to introduce that book to us. Yeah. So again, this is a, a book that he wrote. It was originally just his journal entries um, from the period of time after his wife of three years, who he, he never thought he would be married. He didn't particularly, he was sort of like a lifelong bachelor um, he fell in love with this American woman who had two sons of her own. Um, and they got married when he was, I think, in his late 50s. And within a very short period of time, I'm pretty sure it was after they were engaged, um, she was diagnosed with, again, cancer. And she, within a couple of years, had died of it. Um, there are some really interesting things that happened in the course of her illness. Um, she was suffering from, I think, bone cancer. Her The cancer was in the bones of her legs, I think, and just suffering a lot of pain. And Lewis asked, um, he prayed to experience that pain for himself to take it from her. And that happened. He got some kind of weird, very quick onset arthritis in his legs and her pain went away. Um, but that didn't last. Um, her, her cancer came back and she died. And his book is, um, it's the rawest kind of cry um, written by someone who's very articulate, even in his 
passionate grief and anger at God. Um, and after all of the sort of very, you know, good and true and helpful, I think, uh, writing that he'd done in, in Problem of Pain, he talks about the experience of being, in his experience, rejected by God. Um, to go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. And then he it gets even darker. Aren't all these notes the senseless writings of a man who won't accept the fact that there's nothing we can do except suffer it? Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And so those two things, the experience of God's absence and the worry about God's character, are the the, the things that he writes his way through and that he, you know, ultimately, that God brings him through. Um, towards the end of the book, he writes... When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question, like peace child, you don't understand. And Gog Randy Gogger uh, quotes um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, which was something that Lewis ultimately also turned to. There's this the sense of, we don't know. God is there. God is not absent. And we don't know the answer. There was not a tidy theodicy, the kind that infuriated Voltaire. Yeah. But there is an additional piece to all of this, um, which is Paul's hope in Second Corinthians. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly are we, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And this is just the promise of the gospel. Um, ultimately, the promise of the gospel is not an explanation for suffering, um, but a, a twofold promise. One is that God has done this himself. He has taken his own medicine. On the cross, he suffered with and more than any of us, that he is with us as we suffer, whether or not we experience him, and that ultimately this is a problem that he will and has solved. Ultimately, the ultimate reason for suffering is that the world is not as it should be, that there was a fall, and that God is going to set this right. Um, that's the sort of apocalyptic gospel that I don't think that we can lose sight of in attempting to answer these questions. I think a, a lot of the people who, a lot of the philosophers who Voltaire was getting irritated with, particularly Leibniz, were trying to like have a very tidy explanation of why in this world it, suffering was actually good. And one thing that Christianity does is to say that no, actually suffering is not good and God's going to solve it. This world has fallen and this world is ultimately going to be transformed completely. That said... Um, I think that there are ways that this can be, I guess, taken in a way that um, I don't think is helpful or right. Um, I've, ha I've had a, a lot of debates lately with a Twitter friend, actually, who um, it was actually responding to um, someone who is an atheist, I think, 
who was um, in light of the earthquake in, in Turkey, basically pulling a Voltaire, famous kind of atheist or possibly deist, probably atheist. Um, this is something that they do, um, which is when there are tragedies, they say, where's your God now? And that, and someone, you know, said this on Twitter and Henry basically said, um, you know, God is going to destroy this world. This world is essentially hell and God is going to destroy it and make a new one. And I think that that is wrong. I think that, yes, the apocalyptic gospel of radical transformation, of radical renewal, of the wiping away of every tear from every eye is true. But at the same time, even in the in the midst of the pain of this world, we also have to be honest about the beauty as well. There's something that could be called the problem of pleasure or the problem of joy. Um that I think we need to hold up alongside the problem of pain if we're thinking about this. And the problem of beauty and the problem of goodness. Yeah. How is it possible that even in the midst of these tragedies, there are examples of just incredible self-sacrifice and nobility? Um, Lewis actually writes about this uh, in the context of his war experience, that, um, yes, the experience of World War I, the horrors of World War I uh, on the front you know, brought you face to face with not just sort of uh, natural evil, but also uh, the peculiarities of, of, of human ignobility. A and yet you saw too, at least you reported, the other side. And those, those problems need to be asked, you know, those problems need to be seen and kept in mind side by side. It really is the case that the age to come of which the New Testament speaks, although there is some language of the uh, abolition of this, you know, present world, um, there is even more language, especially in, I think, of Paul, you know, Romans 8, uh, of the renewal of creation, the restoration of creation, that, uh, you know, everything from the insects haunted by, you know, horrible parasites to people who are suffering from natural disasters, that there is a way and all of that will be made right and that the beauty will triumph over the horror. And that is a promise that I think we need to hold on to uh, in the midst of these, you know, very shaking things. And whenever you say that, right, you're going to infuriate a kind of, a certain kind of person, right? And the old Marxist cry of religion as this opiate uh, making people feel good. Um, Pie in the sky when you die. Mm -hmm. What's your response to that? Because there is a form of religion that is an opiate, right? Yeah. Uh, there's been certainly been forms of Christianity that were pretty well designed um, to keep people happy in their estate. I think of the um, original version of the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. <laughs> which has a, has a verse that's no longer sung, uh, which talks about sort of the great order of being. And, you know, he uh, put the rich people in his mansion and the poor cottager in his hut, and uh, he ordered their estate, I believe is the line. And, and, you know, just, you know, little cottager with your kids dying of dysentery, uh, be happy, right? So uh, that, that is a perversion of Christianity. Uh, 
I actually think that sort of the atheist Marxist crowd make much more of it than they make more of it than is justified. But what do you think? Everything has its perversion, right? I mean, like every good thing has its bad form. Yeah. And if you're if you're going to look for a philosophy that is really good at oppressing the poor, Christianity is not going to be it. Like Christianity is not your go to um, if you're going to look for a philosophy. Yeah. No, like like. The New Testament and the early church fathers are kind of harsh on rich, comfortable people. You know, uh, weep and wail, you rich. Um, it will be taken from you. And do something about it. Do something about it. Right. Uh, the call of the prophets. Uh, remember the widow and orphan. The Beatitudes, you know, this this praising of the the hungry, the thirsty, the suffering, the, the weeping. Those are the ones who will laugh. And then, of course, in Luke, those... Promises are reversed for those who are satisfied in this life. Uh, they are promised uh, suffering in, I guess, the eschatological future. I think one thing to think about is that Christianity is complicated, and there's a lot of different parts to it, and there's a lot of different moods of it, and there are a lot of different angles on reality because reality itself is complicated. And so if one, like, there, there's... A, it, at least in my own experience of thinking about these things and then trying to act on them because Christianity is a way of life that leads to action. It's not just something to think about. Things are always changing. You're always, you're following a path. You're trying to use a map. You're trying, you're, you're on a journey and things are complicated. But what I would say is if there is a time and a, and a place and a, and a state of being where all of these things are going to be reversed and all of all that is sad is going to come untrue. And if it's true that we need to prepare ourselves for that in some significant ways in order to be able to participate in it, then that's important. If it's not true, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. Um, but if it's true, then everything's different. So part of this is a matter of fact. Um, if Marx is wrong, as a matter of fact about Christianity, that's important. That's kind of thing one. Thing two, as we were talking about kind of implying earlier, is Christianity is absolutely terrible if you're looking for a religion that is going to make people passive or keep them down. Um, one of the things that we believe is that everything good that we do is going to be caught up in the world to come. All of the good deeds that we do, all of the good acts that we do, we're storing up treasures in heaven. All of the hospitals that we build, and we can talk about Ivan Illich later, maybe. Um, all of the the alms that we give, all of the times that we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, all of the joy that we have, all of the um, sort of the moments of um, earthly good that are experienced in loving ways none of this will be lost. And so there's actually, in my experience at least, a much, much greater um, impetus to do good and to make good things because they're, they're not going to be passing away. There are parts of the world that are passing away, but not everything passes away. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's what I would, one of the things that I would say to Marx. We're going to keep on saying things to Marx over the course of this next series of podcasts. We are. And you did mention... <laughs> yeah. And we started out with uh, talking about my interview with Tom Holland, which is coming up next, where we talk specifically about the difference that the crucifixion of Christ makes to the way we think about pain and basically the, 
the way it's completely reversed, the way humanity approaches pain uh, and the question of suffering. And so this whole series, uh, quite a bit of it, will run during the season of Lent as we lead up to Holy Week, and that will certainly be part of this series. But before we close off this opening episode, we do want you, dear listeners, to also check out the issue of Plow Quarterly on which uh, the series is based and kind of give us an inspiration. And Susanna, should we just kind of go back and forth and talk about a few of our f- favorite pieces before we kind of close out here? Sure. Um, you want to go first with number one on my little list here? Yeah, so uh, one is actually uh, a piece from Ben Crosby. He's an Episcopal priest up in Canada, and he wrote a super powerful reported piece, uh, Where Are the Churches in Canada's Euthanasia Experiment? Folks may have been following the increasing debate around Canada's medical assistance in dying law, which is being expanded year by year. Uh, The last year for which we have data, 2021, 10,000 Canadians chose to die by medical assisted dying. That is, to be uh, specific, not assisted suicide. That is actual active euthanasia. And uh, this thing is growing. And the passivity of many Christian churches uh, is especially shocking. And Ben gets into that. So that's a piece that uh, you should definitely read that has a direct link to this question, you know, does my suffering have meaning or should I simply take an early exit? We also have a piece, um, which is actually an excerpt from a recently published uh, graphic novel uh, by Jason Lancel called Felix Mann's The Making of a Young Radical. It's a selection from our our graphic novel by Water. Um, it's basically a the, the story of um, one of the kind of leading figures of the Radical Reformation um, and the way that he, in his pursuit of, of a true Christianity and a, and a more um, authentic Christianity, how he passed from Catholicism through a kind of Zwinglian um, magisterial Protestantism to um, the Radical Reformation, to a kind of proto-Anabaptism. And that story is told dramatically with um, Jason Lancel's characteristic art. It's a great sort of father-son story between Mance, the son of a, you know, the bastard son of a priest, and uh, his father figure is Wingley, and their uh, complex relationship ending in Mance's execution at Swingley's uh, more or less behest. Um, another uh, piece that I just really, really love in this issue is by the German writer, Navid Kermani. Uh, he's a reporter, travel writer, not uh, of son of Iranian parents. He's Muslim. Um, he traveled to the south of Madagascar to report on what the United Nations is calling uh, the world's first climate-caused drought. It gets at a lot of the issues we talked about in this podcast. South of Madagascar has a farming area um, historically neglected by sort of the big metropolitan centers in Madagascar. And these farming families who are extremely traditional, extremely linked to their land uh, through their ancestors. They're Christian, but they have a very uh, strong kind of ancestor um, veneration uh, culture that doesn't sort of permit them to just leave their villages, are extremely vulnerable to uh, 
a terrible drought that's been going on for a while now. And uh, it's called The Dust on All the Faces. This may sound like an extremely depressing article, uh, but Navid Karmani did a wonderful job of helping us meet the, these people as people, not as sort of statistics uh, in a natural disaster. And uh, pointing out the ways that we can learn from them. And uh, so it's just a beautifully, beautifully done, very literary piece of reportage. We could take a lot of time to go through all of these at this level of detail, but we don't have that time. So I'm going to just give three more. Um, and then Pete's going to give three more really quickly. And you guys can pick up a copy of that um, magazine physically, if you have the capability of doing that, if you wanted to sign up, or you could just go to plow.com to check out the current issue. So Rick Warren, God's purpose in your pain, talking about the suicide of his son. Um, Nathan Beacom on the return of the bison, which is what it says on the tin. Um, Elizabeth Button, letters from a vanishing friend about a woman with Alzheimer's. Um, and Pete. Yeah, so Elizabeth Button, uh, about the woman with Alzheimer's, that's my little sister. Definitely read her article. It's about her story uh, of a friendship with a woman with Alzheimer's when she was a teenager. Uh, Eleanor Parker wrote this beautiful piece, The Speaking Tree on the Dream of the Rude. And there's a great series of excerpts from Wang Yi, who's a house church pastor in Chengdu, uh, China, who's been in prison for years. And it's sort of his writings from prison. Um, could kind of think of a modern Bonhoeffer. And then our uh, books and culture editor, Joy Clarkson, wrote a piece on the Oberammergau Passionsspiele, the sort of passion play in Germany called Oberammergau's Broken Vow. So check that out. Find out what's broken about their vow. Thanks so much for joining us um, for this first issue, our first episode of this new uh, series. And um, we're... We are excited uh, for this for this issue of the magazine. Um, we think it's an important one. We wish you all a blessed Lent, and we urge you all to face whatever pain is in your life with fortitude. Um, and Lent is obviously a time when we kind of turn directly into those parts of our lives that are less than um, pleasurable, and the parts of our lives that draw us closer to Christ in His suffering and draw us closer to each other. So thanks very much, and we will see you again soon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met, and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be speaking with Tom Holland, the historian and author, on the sheer weirdness of Christianity's approach to pain.